Okay, guys, next up. You feeling okay about that? Okay. Um, so now you'll see a bigger slip of paper on your table that repeats one of those phrases. Uh, give that to your most confident teammate and send them on up to the front. No, be nice. Did you get an easy one? Come on up, Ben. Okay. Uh, okay, hold it for a second and take a piece of tape. Don't be. Ooh. All right, you guys see where we're going with this? So now, now we're going to see, guys, can we put this all on a timeline? So part of, why, part of why we're doing this is, guys, as we study, hold on, hold, hold on, ladies. No, I'm going to, like, call you out. Line up. Line up right here. Okay, Kayla's done. Good job. You win. Line up here. Okay. So, guys, something that someone taught me years ago um, as I started learning biblical theology is to practice telling the story of the Bible. All the time, just practice telling the story of the Bible. So you can tell yourself in the mirror. You can talk to yourself uh, while you're on a walk. If you have young kids or grandkids, you just practice telling them the whole big story of the Bible, which is essentially what we're doing for this study. And so we're going to do that as a group, okay? So we're going to, for me, it's, it's visual. It helps me to put it on a timeline. So that's what we have behind Emily here. So what are we going to, we do, okay, we're going to start. Who thinks they have the first thing up here? Maybe read it really loud, out loud. Yes, good job. Tape it on up there. All right, who thinks they're next? Just go for it. Good, Michelle. Adam and Eve sin. What happens after that? That fits into our theme. Adam and Eve exiled into the garden. So far, that's beautiful. Great. All right. Now I make some big jumps, and it was just whatever ones came to my mind, so... Who thinks they're next? Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. We're going to make a big jump in the Old Testament. I don't know. Nope. Israelites. Nope. I think we should have 10. Israelites failed to believe. Yep. So big jump. So we're jumping from Genesis to where we were this week. Numbers. Okay. All right. Israelites failed to believe. All right, a 40-year jump to Margaret, and now the Israelites are entering into the promised land after being in the wilderness. We're going to make another big jump, Wendy. Oh, sad moment again, guys. You see the repetition here? So now, how many, how many hundreds of years later? Yes, this is the exile to both Babylon and Assyria. Sad moment in the story again. Okay, we are back in the wilderness, so to speak. What do we think comes next? Big jump. I think New Testament, maybe? Jesus enters. What do you got, Em? Jesus entered the wilderness of this world as a baby. Great. We start to feel hope. We start to feel excited. Do we agree? Yes, yes. I was just trying to see. <laughs> okay. 
Yes. There's that. We talk about that being the moment of the climax, the biblical story climaxes in Christ, and then culmination. Kayla? Yay. Good job. There we go, guys. We did it. Easy peasy, right? So this is both a good warm-up for us, helps us focus, helps us remember maybe you did all your reading on the first day, and you need to remember what you studied this week. But we are going to practice telling the story all the time. There's so many different ways to, to tell the story of the Bible. And so using the theme of wilderness is the one that we worked on this week. All right. So why don't you um, go ahead and open up your Bibles, guys. We are going to be in Numbers 13 and 14 to start with. All right, guys, so this week, hopefully you read the intro to Nancy's book and chapter one, and then it was kind of a lot from the Bible. It's a lot of narrative, Uh, so Genesis 1 and 3, Numbers 13, a little bit of 14, and then we jumped over to the New Testament to Matthew 4, I think just the first part of that. Um, I thought that we would start in Numbers because I think that it was the most challenging. Would you guys agree? In your week of reading, did you find that to be maybe the least familiar? Anyone? Yeah, I can't tell you the last time that I was in numbers. So it was kind of, it was fun to get pulled back in there. Um, and I, I had thought that numbers was a lot more like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, like it was going to be pretty dry. So I was actually happy to get pulled back in and find that it was a story, that it was a narrative. So, um, so yeah, let's just, let's jump into that, guys. And um What I want to do most of this time is just kind of go through that process that hopefully you went through in your Bible reading time of looking for observations. You're going to hear some of the observations I made, hear the questions that I have, hopefully land on truths about God. So let's actually open in prayer, guys. Father, it is so um, such a gift to be in this room with these women, Lord, and to feel like we're a team, to feel like we are just with our presence, Lord, reminding each other that the Bible is for everyone. It's for us, Lord, and, and in your word, you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for making it a big story, Lord. Thank you for uh, the invitation to story time uh, over and over again. So, Lord, we don't want to open it this morning without your help. We don't want to open it just looking to get smarter. Lord, we want to worship. And we want to be comforted. And we want to be strengthened. So we need your spirit to do that. So we thank you ahead of time for what you want to show us, Lord. Be with us now. Amen. All right, guys. So in each of these uh, passages, we saw the theme of wilderness. And as you studied and took some notes, uh, hopefully you started to make connections as you saw wilderness pop up in each of these passages. So when Numbers 13 opens, where the people of God are, the the Israelites, the children of God, they are about two years after uh, the exodus from Egypt. So that kind of gives us a timestamp, okay? So picture all the plagues and them being delivered from Egypt. And then it's about two years later, they spent like a whole year, nine months or a year at Mount Sinai, 
give you kind of something else to be familiar with where Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the law, gets the Ten Commandments, the instructions for the tabernacle. They build the tabernacle, okay? Is this feeling a little bit more familiar now? Okay, so now here they are. It's been uh, two years. In those two years, God has miraculously provided for them and protected them. He has shown them his glory. So think about some of those things. He uh, provided manna, right, from the sky. He uh, provided quail when they got sick of manna. He provides water from a rock. He shows them his presence. And when this story picks up, guys, the children of God are like on the boundary lines, of the promised land. That is Canaan. They are brought to the boundary line. This is the land that had been promised to them for generations and generations, passed down from Abraham. Think like Genesis 15 and 17. They are the children that are receiving that promise. They are here. This is a very climactic time. And so as we look at Numbers 13, guys, here's essentially what happens. Uh, they, They get to this spot, And God gives a message to Moses. He says, send 12 spies out. I want you to scout the land. I want you to go see what the promised land is like. And then I want you to bring back a report. I want you to go see the land that I have given you. And what ends up happening is that they go, they see all of this fruit, but they also see the people that live in the land. And when they come back, 10 of the 12 of them are naysayers. 10 of them are saying, we can't do it. There's, there's no way. We are like grasshoppers to these giants of men, these bad guys. And it sends the children of God just into a place of doubt and, and chaos. Okay, that's essentially our story. So here's the process as I studied this, as I read this repeatedly, a couple of the observations that I made that I thought were interesting. interesting. Right away, we noticed that these men, these 12 spies are the leaders of Israel. Did you guys notice that right away? Verse one, it says it twice. Whether you're reading the, uh, the ESV, I noticed it in both the ESV and the CSV, it says explicitly that they are leaders, that they are chosen, that they are chiefs, that they are the tribal leaders. Just an observation. At this point, I'm not like, and I know exactly what that means. I just wrote it down as an observation. They were supposed to be the courageous ones. They are supposed to be the faithful representatives of the Israelites. I also saw that twice it's mentioned in in just a few verses that the land had already been given to them by God. Did you guys notice that? It's been given to them, right? Seems important if it's mentioned twice. God wants that to be known to them. What an important reminder. Third observation, I could not believe how much fruit was talked about. Did you notice that? So much fruit was talked about, so much about grapes, and then it even goes into pomegranates, which we saw in the Exodus study last year. And was it dates or figs? I get those two mixed up. Anyone know? Figs? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's all this talk about fruit and about vegetation. And so I'm making this observation. This sounds like Eden. This sounds like a description of what we read about already in Genesis chapter one. And last observation for now, how long were the spies in the land? 40 days. I thought that was interesting. Okay, there's my observations for now. So here's the questions I have, guys. 
Here they are. They're standing on the cusp of the line, guys. They are in this wilderness is here. Garden-like Canaan is right here. And they had this chance. It is time to receive the promise that God has given them. And they fail. They doubt. They don't believe. They don't obey. And you're like, that doesn't sound like a question. My question is, what gives? What? Are you kidding me? That's my question, actually. How could this be? How could you possibly, in this moment, fail to believe, fail to obey? Your nickname is Children of Promise. I mean, this has been talked about for generations, for hundreds of years. Your people have talked about the fact that God has given you a land. This is your day to receive it. And instead, you fail to believe. How is that possible? Here, guys, is a story about the chosen leaders of Israel in a moment of doubt. That is the summary of this. God's people are being tempted to question God's words. And you can almost hear, when you, when you listen to the report that the spies gave the people of Israel, it's like reading between the lines, what does it sound like? It's like they're saying to them, did God really say that this land was for you? Did God really promise you this? Is this really God's word? And they cast doubt into the people of God. Does it sound familiar to where we started our week? Does that, who does that sound like, guys? What story does it sound like? Genesis 3, right? Who do we find in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, the representatives for God's children our first parents, the leaders of mankind. And here they are in Eden, surrounded by fruit-bearing trees. All the details we saw in Genesis 1 about fruit-bearing trees, and they are tempted. What did the serpent say to them? Did God really say? Did God really say that you cannot eat from this tree? And he cast doubt. And as we saw, guys, Adam in that moment, failed a test. Adam failed to believe. Adam failed to obey. Numbers 13 and 14, the Israelites fail to believe. They fail to obey. You almost get this image. It's almost funny if it wasn't so true. It's almost funny. You picture their mouths full of grapes. You picture their hands full of the pomegranates. You see them quite literally, it says, carrying the fruit that God had given them, the abundance that God had for them. They're carrying it. And yet in that moment, they fall into discouragement and discontentment. So now I'm just going to go back to another question. My, my questions were pretty simple this week. It just keeps going with, like, why? How could you? I think what we see when we read all of these together, at least part of what is going on in Numbers 13 and 14, is that they were doubting God as their loving father. And here's why I say that, guys. Why I make the jump to fatherhood is because it seems like they are doubting who they are as the children of God. They have forgotten that they are the children of promise, right? And in forgetting who they are as children, they have forgotten who God is as father in this moment of doubt. Rather than clinging to who they are supposed to know God is and who they are as his children, rather than clinging to that, they not just doubt, but they end up rivaling 
God in this moment, just like we saw in Genesis 3. Instead of receiving what God has for them, they reach for control and safety. They, instead of receiving God's plan for them, they reach for a different plan. They reach for their own plan. When it was clear that God had given them this land. So the story continues to kind of layer onto each other. Guys, what happens in both of these failed tests is that the children of God are then led into exile. They, Adam and Eve, are kicked out of Eden, which is like a promised land, and head out into the wilderness. The children of God are not invited into the land, but are set back into the wilderness for 40 years of wandering. They are prevented from entering into it. They are now in a place, like we read from Nancy's book, a place of emptiness, a place of void, a place of chaos and thorns. So this is that moment, kind of that low point in the story when we are using biblical theology to see the big story where don't we just want to quick move forward in the Bible and see the good news. Like we know it's there. We, you know, we did our homework or maybe we've been in church or we can just feel like, well, they're surely not gonna leave us in this sad moment. We want to get to the resolution of the theme of the story of wilderness. And even in my notes, I'm like, all right, time to turn to Matthew 4. And then I was stopped. And I just kind of stepped into a time, like more of like a, a, a time of meditation with the Lord because I was like, no, I think you're supposed to sit here longer, Rebecca. I think I need to feel how sad this moment is where they are forfeiting what God has for them. And perhaps I even need to see how I'm really in no place to judge them because maybe I actually need to see that I I would have responded much the same. Because I think so often hard times make me doubt God. And even though we're seeing all these observations, guys, and we're tying together all these details, could it actually be that that is what this whole story is about when it, when it lands on application? That hard times so often make us doubt God. And so is there something in the story of wilderness that can remedy that, that, that can help us move out of that pattern of doubting God in hard times? Now, when I say hard times, I think that we're at risk for maybe oversimplifying that. You know, I can remember talks from like high school youth group or whatever, where you hear about hard times or suffering or persecution. And it was just like nice and objective and clear. Like, oh yeah, popular girls are mean to me. Oh yeah, I'm a pastor's kid, so I get made fun of. Oh yeah, someone broke my heart, whatever. So I'm suffering and going through persecution. And there, in my memory at least, those younger years of hard times, it was, it was just a simple thought. But I think as we get older, we need to kind of address some of the nuances of, of trials. I mean, we're studying the book of James, so I think there's great overlap here. I think in this room, so often the hard times are not the really big public high adrenaline losses in our life. I think so often what you know, what, what a room like this would share about are things that are pretty, that we could maybe hold pretty close to the chest and often are probably pretty complicated things, often are long-term relational things. They're, they're hard things that maybe we felt like spiritual adrenaline with like 20 years ago. But now, 
now it just feels like part of our life, right? That person that is ungracious with us year after year after year, or that person that we love that just won't change, that just won't see their blind spots, right? The person that we are having a very hard time to forgive, or the person that seems to be having a hard time forgiving us. I think when we hear a big statement like, hard times make a stout God, right? We need to be a little bit more honest about what's really hard in our life. You know, when I think about times when I have handled sufferings well, it's the big, surprising, sweeping losses. The times when I doubt, though, it's when I'm five years in. And maybe I'm tired of sharing it with people because I'm sick of hearing myself talk about it or I fear how it will be received. So whatever it is in our life, in our past, in our, in our presence now, or maybe we see it in our future, let's, let's be honest about that. And let's say even years into church life, years into being a Christian, I think we can all find times when hard times make us doubt God. And that's when we find ourselves in Numbers 13 and 14. And we're saying, oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I, may, I may have all of these fruits metaphorically that they had literally. My arms might be full of these fruits. My life might be full of them. And yet all I can see is the one thing I don't have, like Adam and Eve. Or I'm, I'm living in a time of abundance, but all that I really bounce around in my head is talk about the giants in my life, the things that just look oversized, too big for me to overcome. And it's in those moments, guys, that I hear the voice of temptation say, did God really say that he would be with you? Did God really say that he loves you, Rebecca? Did God really say to you guys that he would be strong in your weakness? And we hear that same voice of the accuser that they heard on the brink of the promised land and that Adam and Eve heard about and heard from in Eden. And in that moment, if I hear the enemy more than I hear my father, if I lean into that rather than leaning into my father, guys, what ends up happening is I stiff arm his plan for me and I pour all of my energy into providing for myself, protecting myself and exalting myself. This, these three examples here actually come from a sermon or actually maybe from a book that was then in a sermon. I think originally we need to give the credit to Russell Moore. This idea of the temptation is to provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, exalt ourselves, or, or give ourselves power if you want to finish off that alliteration with the P's. Where does this leave us, guys? Can you relate with this moment, that temptation to do one of those three things? So what's actually wrong with that? Like, where does that leave us? This took me about half a second to realize where this leaves me on repeat. It leaves me anxious, angry, and very exhausted. That's the flow there. I go from protecting myself to being anxious. I go from providing for myself to being angry. Exalting myself just leaves me very tired and very disappointed. And now, now we have let the big story of wilderness just tank us, right? To bring us to this moment, not to feel despair, but to feel how very much we need good news. We got to sit in this tension, draw back the rubber band of this story. 
to see how very much we need God. So now, turn to the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew 4. I think we read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Guys, will you take one, uh, just take about 10 seconds to yourself. I want you to read the chapter before chapter 4. Read 3, 13 through 17 to yourself to get context. Okay, so then as we start Matthew chapter 4, guys, let's just start with these observations again. Here's a couple of things that I would have written down in my notebook, guys. I see that the context is that Jesus was just baptized. In that baptism, the heavens opened and God's voice comes and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am, is that where he says, with you, I am well pleased? Yeah, with whom I am well pleased. Continuing the observations into chapter four, I see that the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. That's weird. We should write that down, right? Especially when we've already seen this theme of wilderness. And I see that he is in the wilderness for how many days? 40, exactly. In this time, guys, what happens is that Jesus is is not eating or drinking in the wilderness, I see that as a moment of contrast. I might observe that like, well, that's opposite of Adam and Eve. That's a very opposite scene of, November, of Numbers 13 and 14, where they have an abundance. Well, here Jesus is in a place of fasting, in a place of, of physical need. And the accuser, the enemy, Satan, comes at him three times. The first time he comes to him, and maybe this is familiar to you guys, he comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, turn this rock into bread. Second time he comes at him, same phrase. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off of this high point of the temple. And then the third time he comes to him and it seems like he takes him like to the top of a mountain and he shows them the land. And he says, if you bow down to me, I will give you all of this land. Guys, are, are the lights flashing now? Are you seeing all of these connections to the other times in the Old Testament? Are you seeing all of this repetition? This is on purpose, guys. See, growing up, I understood this temptation of Christ um, as serving, the most important purpose of this text was it was giving me an example to follow on how to shut down the enemy, how to shut down temptation. And I assume some of you are in that same boat. And that wasn't wrong. Like this, there is good uh, stuff here for us to follow, follow Jesus' example in using the word of God to shut down lies from the enemy. We could feast on that for a long time. We could work really hard on that for a long time. But remember last week we talked about that when we study the Bible in this way, using biblical theology, it will not leave us at just a to-do list. It will not crush us with just like a, a recipe or a plan for how to be better Christians. Do you remember what we said it'll do instead? Instead of crushing us with the to-do list, 
It's going to lift our gaze to a big story and leave us in awe of who Christ is. Okay, so let's, let's look closely at Matthew 4 and see how it's going to do that, guys. Look past, look for more than just giving Jesus giving us a script, more than just Jesus being an example to us, okay? Matthew 4 and the other accounts of this are written in a way that we are supposed to have a bell ringing, like this sounds like Genesis, this sounds like Numbers, this sounds like Exodus. I mean, this, this brings to life so many parts of the Old Testament, guys. But what we are supposed to see, to start with, is that, where Adam and the Israelites failed their test. Jesus passed the test. Adam had a moment to obey and believe, and he failed. The Israelites had a moment to obey and believe, and they failed. Jesus has this moment to obey and believe, and he did just that. So he is mixing up this pattern that we have been seeing through the Old Testament, where they were unfaithful, Jesus was faithful. What else is going on here, guys? Well, as Satan comes to Jesus, he tells him our same pattern. He starts with provide for yourself. Take that rock and turn it into bread. Provide for yourself. And then protect yourself. Throw yourself off of this high point of the temple and protect yourself. And then he gives him an opportunity to glorify himself. And in these questions, as especially those first two times when he says, if you are the son of God, Hold on, look back, look at 13, guys. What did we see? What did Jesus just hear from God? You are my beloved son. That's what's ringing in his recent past. But now Satan is taking that. And here is Jesus hungry and parched and tired and alone except for the accuser. And Satan is saying, did God really say that you're the son of did God really say that you're the beloved son? I mean, you, you haven't eaten. You're alone. Did God really say that with you, he is well pleased? And we just see the same pattern on repeat from Satan. What Satan, I think, is trying to get Jesus to do in this moment is so much more than just turning a rock into bread or taking a jump off of a high point. Guys, I believe that what he is doing, he is trying to get Jesus to cast off the fatherhood of God, to reject the fatherhood of God. Because here is Jesus, and while he is fully man, he is fully God. And what Satan wants him to do in taking these three steps is to stiff arm God as his father, to act in the autonomy that he could act on, and essentially, he wants him to skip the cross. Do you see that? He's saying, no, act now. Act right now at the beginning of your ministry. Show all of your strength now. Act independently from the Father. Don't receive the plan the Father has for you. That'd be the cross. Because just protect yourself, Jesus. And doesn't it sound just like Numbers 13 and 14, where he leads him to look at the land? Isn't that cool? He says, look at this land. I'll give it to you. Whose land is it? His father's. It is already going to be Jesus's land. But Jesus needs to go through the will of the father. He needs to receive what God has for him. And there's a moment of contrast from Genesis and Numbers. 
What God had for them was to receive the land. What God had for Jesus was the cross. Satan wants him to cast off the fatherhood of God. But unlike Adam and unlike the Israelites, Jesus is faithful. And Jesus obeys. One more connection that is just so beautiful, guys. Think about how Adam was a representative for mankind, cast us all into a sinful nature. But then think about those Israelites. How were they depicted as leaders, tribal leaders, representatives? So here we see two representatives bringing harm to the people that they represent. But here is Jesus, the better representative, the better older brother, the better Adam, the true Israel. And he is clinging to the fatherhood of God. He is clinging specifically to his identity as the son of God. He clings to it in the 40 days in the wilderness. And then he keeps clinging to it. And he keeps clinging to it all the way to the cross. When he was crowned with thorns, quite literally taking on the symbol of the wilderness, taking on the curse, literally and spiritually. And then what happens? Because he obeys and goes through the cross, he gets exiled from the Father for a time. Contrasting with this baptism, at his baptism, the sky's open and he hears that he's loved at the cross. The sky darkens as if closing. The voice comes from the cross this time and the heavens are quiet as he is exiled from the Father so that you and I don't have to be. He takes on wilderness. He takes on exile so that we can have an Edenic life, so that we can live in paradise forever with him, so that we can have closeness with God. And here's, here's where the awe moment came for me, ladies. Going back to Numbers 13 and making a couple connections, a couple connections in this last moment, guys. When I, you know, I'm picturing them at, at the promised land, at, at the boundary lines. And I realized that for me, at that moment of like the hinge between my wilderness and my promised land, my Canaan, my, my paradise, I don't have to stand atop my own obedience. In that moment, in that moment, that hinge, guys, when I'm on the brink, it doesn't end up being about our obedience. And even more so, guys, this is amazing. We don't have to, in that moment, whether you're picturing like being at the gates of heaven or whatever comes to your mind, or just any moment of, of doubt before the Lord, you don't even have to pull up your highlight reel, your spiritual highlight reel. You don't have to say the times when you were, hey, but I was like Caleb and I was like Joshua in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. In that moment, guys, we don't even try and do that. We don't even try to convince God or ourselves that we are obedient enough because the true and better Caleb obeyed for us and the true and better Joshua obeyed where we could not and passed the test where we would fail. The better representative is Christ and he passed the test of the wilderness. Jesus is that hinge, and guys, it is through his death that we became children of God. 
And so that is the identity we cling to. Through his death, the garden was opened back up, like Nancy said. And so now the nearness of God is our reality. So now as we wait for heaven to to trickle into our life now, as we wait for our present reality to become our reality today, guys, what do we do when we're honest and say, yeah, it still feels like wilderness though. Or like we saw in our reading, guys, what do we do on the days when we feel the thorn in our flesh? How do we let this big story, Genesis to Revelation, affect us today, midweek, adulting? I think that this story gives us hope in the wilderness. And I think that this story gives us an invitation to consider where are the ways that we are tempted to provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, and exalt ourselves. Let's, let's actually think about that. What, what are those ways that we're tempted to do that in a given week? We're not going to turn a rock into bread But there's ways every single day that I think the enemy or our sinful nature says, did God really say he'd provide for you? And so we take the reins. Where are the times as women that we are tempted to protect ourselves? Did God really say he was your defender? Your fortress? your ever-present help in time of trouble. Did God really say that, right? And then where are those times where we just want to reach for power, that we, are, we want to exalt ourselves? What's that look like in our lives? I think that our application, that's one of our applications. As we, as we see Christ as the good news in the wilderness, as we see him as our hope in the wilderness, We need to think about very clearly, very objectively, how can we cling to the fatherhood of God? We haven't outgrown it. We are children of God. We are children of promise. Children don't worry about protecting themselves, providing for themselves, or exalting themselves. They receive what their father has for them. We haven't graduated that, guys. So let's, let's land there. Let's end with that application. Uh, your leader has just, I think it's just two questions to so make sure that we just are focused on this idea of applying this good news and this hope. And we are going to spend the rest of our time, um, it's, it's 10 o'clock right now. So we're going to end, we're going to give you 20 minutes as a small group to like formally talk about this. Um, and then you're, of course, welcome to to linger and and hang out. But at 1020, if you have kiddos, um, children of God, go get them, okay? Especially if they're angry, children of God. No. All right. Thanks so much, guys, and we will see you next week.